Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thanks to Chris for his last program of Great Voices. It's Jan Bartlett with Tuesday Home Time until 6 o'clock this afternoon. Today, Dr Margie Beavers from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War talking about a protest which will be held on Sunday at Melbourne University Re there, getting into bed with the weapons manufacturers. A speech by Warren Smith, the Secretary of the MUA Division of the CFMEU, at the IPAN National Conference in Darwin, world events by Dr Tim Anderson, plowshare activists in court in Georgia, USA. Kathy Kelly was there from Voices for Creative Nonviolence and the continuing campaign for Julian Assange. I'll be speaking with Dr Alison Branowski. But first, Mr Kevin Healy. A weak journalist, though when a man who knows about all these things, Andrew Hasty to War, trained killer turned politician, not only trained killer, but a member of the Sons of God, expert, expert killers trained to kill with a little finger. So when Andrew says we should stop ignoring the fact that evil, evil China is the Third Reich, Hitler resurrected, showing the Chinese apparently believe the Aryan race should control the world, we should take him seriously. Um, How should we react, Andrew, to maintain peace? War! Kill, kill, kill! War! War! Kill, kill, kill! We'll come back to Andrew's quest for peace, but related to that, last week we talked about the welcome visit by a couple of US of the UN of the US of the world peace-seeking warmongers, quoted the Secretary for US of World State, Mike Pompeo, or else, that our close, close relationship was unbreakable, and it will remain unbreakable as long as you do what we tell you which includes pointing a few U.S. of weapons of mass destruction at evil China, now that the U.S. of has torn up that agreement with Russia. And we left, Mike, telling us, speaking of evil Iran, back to that unbreakable bit. I'm sure we can rely on our old friend True Blue Aussie. And indeed they can. But in a statement that would make Pontius Pilate green with envy, Big Supremo scuttled them more lash sun, said True Blue Aussie would send trained killer patrols to Iran, or just off Iran, to support the US of, but would not get involved. Not get involved in the dispute between the good guys, good US of, and the bad guys, evil Iran. Kill, 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 while washing his hands in the Straits of Hormuz. I told you the old Pontius would have been green with. And it's wonderful news, exciting news, because it's like old times again. Scuttle them spoke to new Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Boris Joynum's son, who's the only other close, close US of friend who's committed to joining the train killers in the Straits of. So it's back to those exciting, heady days of then US of Big Supremo George W. Bash, the workers, 
ordering then Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country and Troubler was he Big Supremo's tiny blyer and the little bald-headed bloke here back in those dark ages to join the coalition of the killing. Don't know if Boris also is prepared to send train killers but not get involved, showing, as Scuttle then clearly recognises, that sending train killers to support the US of yet again is not getting involved. With that logic running riot, conversations between US of Big Supremo Donald and Boris and Scuttle them must reach astronomical heights of logic and intelligence. Oh, but of course, Constable Duffer is our guardian of intelligence. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Silly, silly thought this, but one other way of not getting involved is not getting involved. By the way, those other close friends of the US are not joining in, so they too won't be involved, for some unaccountable reason seem to feel the US of itself is responsible for the mess, and they call themselves friends. And Boris is join em, son, when it comes to kill, 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 brackets not involved, but the opposite when it comes to the rest of Europe, exit em, son. Still on kill, 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 those missiles that would just happen to be pointing at evil China bring us back to Andrew Hasty to War's timely warning, which has caused so many contortions in the caring business class government, it makes a circus contortionist look rigid. As they attempt to show our obsequious civility to our masters, or sorry, our, our great ally and very, very close and warm friend, the US of, and not show our biggest trading partner, evil China, that we are obsequiously servile. And it, it's just so difficult as the Minister for Capitalist Trade, that is good, good trade, side Birmingham, Simon Birmingham said, Andrew's likening our biggest trading partner to Nazi Germany would aggravate our biggest trading partner, showing how sensitive evil China must be to a simple little comparison. And Scuttle then was running from the comments as fast as possible and presumably would ensure that if we did have all these missiles pointing at evil China, backing up Pine Gap and US of train killers station in Trublawazi, we would most certainly not get involved. And the Socialist Party joined them in pointing out how our warm relationship with the US of and supporting US of aggression toward our biggest trading partner didn't affect our close trading relationship and by week's end they were all so contorted they were staring up each other's... Uh, well, I won't be crude, but it, but it took the Socialist Party's deputy chair of Andrew's security through train killing committee to support Andrew and tell us he had given a timely warning showing what a dedicated little socialist the socialist is and what a deep social thinker. And I'll tell you his name, except I can't remember it, and what's it matter? The government, via some junior minister assisting called Ben Morteen, announced a productivity commission inquiry into why red tape is so holding up resource pr project approvals, a major complaint of our highly esteemed resource industry. Well, when I say our, our, many of them are somewhere else's, but it's good of them to so care for Troubler Aussie, they're prepared to come here and provide jobs, 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 and raise our living standards through the taxes they don't have to pay, because that bit of the business is most definitely somewhere else. 
causes the corporate sector keeps pointing out it needs certainty. Presumably crippling, delaying red tape-like environmental effects processes. It's so frustrating. Frustrated resource executive Chuck Bloated III looked exasperated when everyone knows they're going to approve it anyway. And they always assure us their environmental impact will be minimal, a small price for jobs, jobs, jobs and economic benefits. If only the anti-progress, anti-trublewazzy greenies could be so reasonable. Like his honour in a case involving a major corporate figure found guilty of falsifying Leighton Holdings books with a potential four years in the slot. Now we all know that it's just bad luck that your common working class crim, like, say, a mother attempting to feed her kids, has no reputation to lose, no shame to feel, no problem getting work because they didn't have work in the first place and jail is the only solution, the lesson they need to learn looked after by the gentle private prison corporations, unlike big corporate crooks who do have those mitigations. As he's on ruled after hearing the prosecution's cruel demand that this corporate crook, bloke called Peter Gregg, be locked up. Thank goodness his honour understood. Poor Peter was a broken man because of the damage to his reputation, making it difficult for him to find work. And his second wife had left him, so clearly he couldn't go to jail as well. Not that I'm suggesting for one second there's a law for the rich and a law for the poor. It's just that the poor need to be taught a lesson and we can imagine his men and, and a few women in suits colleagues discussing the reputation loss. How irresponsible of him, how stupid of him to get sprung. I hope no one thinks that Donald Trample the poor replaying an assertion that a former U.S. of Big Supremo was involved in the death of one of the rich in a U.S. of cell whose trial would have fingered a number of filthy rich, likely including a member of Her Most Gracious Majesty's in Breadlot, indicates Donald thinks the former Big Supremo was involved. Being involved when not involved is a theme today, isn't it? So, no, he just wants a full investigation. Oh, and, and don't think Donald may have said the rich pedophile deceased was a great guy in vision of them perving together because he says he didn't think he was a great guy. But on common criminals, isn't it thoughtful of the mass media to keep us informed day after day, P1, leading the telly news, the life and times of some mass murderer's lump and pro widow, and when might they realise we don't give a stuff? But then on common criminals, thank goodness for Lord Rupert of Wapping outing these bludgers, dull bludgers, payments to bludgers withheld, the headline screamed. More than half a million welfare recipients had their payments cut off for bludging instead of looking for work and attending appointments, or worse, not turning up to work for the doll. Quoting that ever-reliable source, the Minister for Gross Incompetence, Michaela Kosh, the workers, welfare recipients abuse the system and it should not be thrown in the face of troublewazzy taxpayers who fund it whatever that meant. And surprise, surprise, the government is focused in getting people off welfare and into work. That's it. The best form of welfare is a job.
and they're certainly achieving a 50% success rate for getting people off welfare 50%. That Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin story was followed next page by another group of pledges on the public purse, the elite private schools. In this case, Lord Rupert bemoaning the closure of an expensive private school and not suggesting taking an extra one million over and above the normal public commitment to educating the rich, extra one million for upgrades, which will be open at the end of the end of the year just as the school closes, is bludging on the public purse. Finally, as Fossils Minister Angus Failure says, we must have nuclear power. In two interviews this week on the ABC, one with the Socialist Party Fossils person and one with nuclear advocate Ziggy Switchovsky Renewables, they didn't mention once the 200,000 year waste. But Angus and Ziggy know that's no problem. Their fossils policy will solve that one. Good afternoon. And for more of Mr Kevin Healy, it's nine o'clock tomorrow morning for City Limits. Places or learning or places of war? That should be the question for those in positions of power at the University of Melbourne. It's becoming increasingly obvious that universities, including Melbourne, are open to accepting substantial funding from some of the world's biggest arms manufacturers and traders, not only conventional, but nuclear weapons as well. An increasing number of people are voicing their concerns about this unethical move into universities and the Victorian branch of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War is determined to increase the pressure to put an end to this and are focusing on the university's open day next Sunday. I'm speaking with Dr Margie Beavis from MAPW And Margie, is it known how long arms manufacturers and traders have been infiltrating into Melbourne Uni? It's not new, is it? Yes, it's been gradually um, creeping up on us. More and more tertiary institutions are taking money from companies, weapons companies, and in in particular nuclear weapons companies. And we feel this is really um, not acceptable. These are weapons that are currently... As your listeners would know, um, there was a treaty to ban these weapons, uh, nuclear weapons, in 2017. And so we are working at the Medical Association for Prevention War to try and put pressure on some institutions to not accept money from these companies. And so we have taken a number of steps to try and do this, but certainly I think a lot of people will be completely unaware that the weapons companies in Australia are gradually infiltrating not just tertiary education, but also and that's universities and the TAFE sector, but also secondary schools, particularly in South Australia, given their likely involvement in in manufacturing. How are they going about it? It's different in different universities, but the commonest model at university level is offering money for PhD scholarships and also for facilities. At Melbourne University, they offered, I think it was $13 million to help set up a, a lab but at the moment, most of the money is being spent on PhD students and postdoctoral students. These students at Melbourne University, as far as we're aware, we know they're working on sensor technology and autonomous vehicle systems, which will, in the future, certainly be very useful for people wishing to deploy nuclear weapons. And taking money from Lockheed Martin, which is the case at Melbourne University, which is the biggest weapons company in the world and heavily involved in nuclear weapons, 
we think is unconscionable. And are students aware of where their funding's coming from? Well, I can't speak on behalf of the actual students who've taken PhDs or the postdocs. I would think they probably are. But we've met with various senior academics, you know, the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research, various deans, and what gobsmacked us when we met with them was one of the responses was, ah, we're only dealing with Lockheed Martin Australia. We're not dealing with Lockheed Martin International. In other words, the implication is, and the other statement was, we don't know what these this research will be used for. Well, the fact that you're partnering with the biggest weapons company in the world might be a bit of a clue. So there's a level of not wanting to see a problem here that is really quite disturbing. Is this a function also of the fact that the federal government is pulling back on funding for, edu- for oh, universities? The poor universities are, are although well, the universities are pretty wealthy university, but certainly the, I can't remember the exact statistics because I heard it some years ago, but it was in the quantum of that the federal funds used to be something like 70 or 80% of university money and now it's about 20%. So these universities are really struggling for funding and the um, industrial sector is increasingly involved. We think it's totally unacceptable for weapons and particularly nuclear weapons to be funding our universities. And is this organisation, this arms manufacturer Lockheed Martin, the only one for Melbourne? No. In fact, Melbourne University tried very hard to get funding from um, British Aerospace Engineering, the Air Systems, last year and, and trumpeted that it was going to build a very large facility. But in fact, the grant ended up going, the, the grant, the tender ended up going to a university in Queensland. But certainly there's other weapons manufacturers involved and other, other manufacturers of nuclear weapon systems. You are part of the alumni of Melbourne University. Have you had any discussions with the Vice-Chancellors or people of that calibre to voice your opinions? We have met with, we met with the actual Chancellor who agreed with us that it was unethical behaviour. The Vice-Chancellor, both the old previous Vice-Chancellor and the current Vice-Chancellor have both refused to meet with us, which is a disgrace. We've met with the pro-Vice-Chancellors for research and for ethics and a number of other pro-Vice-Chancellors We've met with the Dean of Engineering, we've met with the Dean of Medicine. There has been no shift on this. The Dean of Medicine understood our concerns and was interested to see how the campaign went. But the others have all defended the, the taking money from Lockheed Martin. And um, in fact, if, if any uh, Melbourne University students or Melbourne University alumni are listening, we actually have a statement calling on Melbourne University students working at that we're targeting at the moment, if they go to the MAPW website, they can see that there's a, uh, a campaign, www.mapw.org.au, and um, the university's unacceptable weapons, there's a statement there that we're particularly targeting to Melbourne University staff, students and alumni. You mentioned there that one person said it is unethical. What is, what is the ethics of a university? What's, in, what's encompassed in their ethics policy? We looked at their ethics and they were saying that they wanted to work for the betterment of the future of humanity and, and statements such as that. And clearly working to with nuclear weapons companies is clearly not that, particularly given we've got an explicit ban from the United Nations saying these weapons are illegal and should not be supported in any sense that they need to be phased out. So it's really an astonishing contravention of their own ethics statements. So you're taking your, your protest to the streets next week? 
Yes, we have the University Open Day on Sunday, the, I think it's the 17th or 18th of August. We are going to make students who are coming to look at Melbourne Uni aware that this is a university with such poor ethical behaviour and make the students think about if they're choosing university, is this really a university they want to be associated with? So um, we'll be certainly taking steps there and if, if people would like to join us, they can meet us in Carlton, in Grattan Street, there's a restaurant called An Orchestra and we'll be meeting at the front there at 9.30 and then we'll be planning what we do for the day. That's Sunday morning? Sunday morning. Have you been in touch with the student union? Been in touch with the student union previously, not for this actual campaign, but not for this particular action, but certainly we've been in touch with the student union prior to this and there's a, there's a, um, a general weapons campaign I'm ashamed to say I've got a mental block on its name that certainly the student union is running. It's been very good. Well, you've just come back from Darwin for a conference talking about independence and peace and you've come back to Melbourne Uni and they're collaborating with one of the biggest arms manufacturers in the world. How did it go in Darwin for you, Margie? The IPAN, the Independent Peaceful Australia Network conferences, are always a really interesting, stimulating and encouraging forum. Um, it's really good to get together with like-minded people who think that we should actually, revolutionary thought, have an independent foreign policy and a peaceful and work for peace. There were some tremendous speakers there. It was uh, a very good couple of days, well organised, and it certainly makes you reflect as we see war with Iran looming and the likely mission creep. I mean, the fact that Australia is joining America and Britain in keeping the Gulf from from was open will inevitably, I I think it's just about guaranteed, if I was a gambler, I'd put a lot of money on it, inevitably leave to mission creep when there's any conflict arises. And I think with the military build-up in that area, the likelihood of some accident or some act of aggression by one side or the other tripping the whole sort of cascade down into war is very, very high. I mean, this is a war that has been created by Donald Trump withdrawing from a really carefully crafted agreement. In 2016, when it came into force, Barack Obama said this agreement, in terms of containing Iran's nuclear ambitions, either you have this agreement or we have war, and those are the only two choices. And Donald Trump unilaterally withdrew from this agreement even though Iran was keeping its side of the bargain. The International Atomic Energy Agency said that Iran had kept every, met every requirement and yet Donald Trump has unilaterally withdrawn last year and then put a really a stranglehold of sanctions on Iran and bullied the rest of the international community into also having sanctions against Iran and um, it's really, this is a war of Donald Trump's creation when it happens. And he seems to be trying a bit of war in our area as well with China. Yes, it's very interesting. Not that I think the Iranian government or the Chinese governments are saints by any means. I mean, they've both got atrocious records in various areas. It's getting to the stage now where what country hasn't. Exactly, exactly, including Australia. Yes, it's interesting to reflect that the ba- if you look at the maps of American bases, and there's over 600 bases internationally, in 80 countries, there is a ring of bases just encircling China all the way around from above Japan right the way down. And it's not surprising that China feels somewhat concerned. 
So I think the anti-Chinese rhetoric is building up and the overall context, I think, is worth stepping back and looking at the American defence budget. America spends more on the military than the next seven countries combined, and that includes India and China and Russia. And it's almost as much as the next eight countries combined. They have a huge war machine. And one of the interesting, other interesting statistics is that when, if you look at America's military spend, if you take all the taxes and income the government, the US government gets, you deduct the interest payments on their loans and you deduct the pension entitlements for veterans or for people on Social Security, you have what's left, the pot of money that's left is what's called the discretionary money because it's not money they're committed to. So the discretionary money is what they should be spending on health and education. It's what they should be spending on the homeless, the environment. And of the discretionary spend that the US government has, almost 60% of that goes to the military, which explains a lot about why the social safety net is so poor in America and a lot about why public education and public health are also so poor in America and also why, interestingly and tragically, the health outcomes in America are much worse than those of much poorer countries. This massive defence spending, massive manufacturing supported by that defence spending, so there is a very, quite sure how to put it, but war is good for business, basically. Well, war is part of business, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. You've just explained how many US bases there are around the world, yet we've got the screaming headlines, this was Friday, saying that China's, how dare they, they're setting up a base in Cambodia. How many overseas bases has China got? I don't know, but I know that the Americans have got multiples. Of, of, I, I think very few that I'm aware of. I haven't actually looked at that number, but I would be astounded if they had anything close to the Americans. No, they haven't. All right, Mike, if you could just give the details of Sunday's Sunday morning again. Sure, sure. So Animal Orchestra, which is in Grattan Street in Carlton, if you catch the Thornton Street tram, it's on the south side. Um, I think it's 193 Grattan Street in Carlton, and that's at... 9.30, we'll probably be there till about 10 and then break up into several groups so that we can cover various open parts. It's 163 Grattan Street in Carlton. We will have various posters. We will even have Dr Lobster, so just to, to make things a bit more fun. Yes, I think if people wish to come and support that action, that would be great. I'll have to ask who Dr Lobster is. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll ask again why. We have a terrific, it'll also probably be our executive officer, depending on how many costumes we can get hold of. We felt that these campaigns can sometimes get a bit earnest and also sometimes having something that's a bit eye-catching and unusual means people sort of take selfies and the media are more interested. So we thought a lobster was fairly random. So it was Elisa's idea and I think it's fabulous. So we're uh, hoping it'll be an enjoyable thing as well as a a consciousness-raising exercise. Okay, thanks, Maggie. No worries. Thank you for having me on. And if you're an early bird, that's um, 163 Granton Street in Carlton, outside the Animal Orchestra Cafe, 9.30am to let Melbourne University the top brass there know what you think about their getting into bed with arms dealers this, is, this Sunday morning. Next a speech by Warren Smith, who's the Secretary of the MUA, Division of the CFMMEU, 
He was speaking at the recent IPAN conference in Darwin. Um, thanks very much, comrades. And I'd like to recognise the traditional owners of the land, pay respects to elders past, present and emerging, recognise that sovereignty was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. One of the things in these uh, capers, comrades, is I don't often follow the script. So I'm not following uh, necessarily Shirley's script, but um, we'll deal with... Uh, let's move this out of the way. Um, but I'd like to thank IPAN and its many affiliate organisations for the opportunity to speak today and put on the record our union's view and experiences in a world wrapped by war, conflict, environmental uh, devastation and exploitation of workers. Now, the same forces implement genocidal policies towards Indigenous populations all over the world. Now, union stands in solidarity with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters and recognises that the liberation of workers will never happen while Indigenous comrades around the world are in chains. We fight the same struggle against the same people and all of us here are on the same side. It's working class people who pay the price for war and that's a fact we cannot escape. War is based on class struggle and either through working class people fighting the wars of the rich and powerful or working people defending against the oppression and plunder of capital. In every scenario, workers, women and children pay the price for conflict. Where we met Friday night, we sat less than 150 metres from the site where 33 Wharfies were killed on the job at Stokes Hill Wharf when Darwin was bombed in 1942. The Japanese imperialist aggression on Darwin killed workers and union members, not bosses. Seafarers in World War II suffered massive carnage that left an indelible historical and ideological legacy on our union's direction and its feelings towards war. Seafarers died and were wounded in higher numbers than in the various sections of the Australian Armed Forces. 386 seafarers died following service on all ships, which meant one in eight merchant seafarers died in World War II. Lisa Natividad identified in a shocking presentation on Friday the use of colonial forces from Guam dying in the US armed forces in numbers far in excess of those lost from mainland US states. Workers and the poorest people are used as cannon fodder in wars for profit for bosses. The enemies of workers, those attacking our rights, our unions, our conditions and our standard of living are the same forces that want to take Australia down a path of subservience to US imperialism and war. It is capital and corporate power that drives the militarism in our society. War is linked to huge profits and has been made a legitimate means of diplomacy. War is used as a means of gaining markets, resources and maintaining the power of capital over our lives. The reality is the US and its ruling elites sit at the heart of most of the world's conflict and it is this giant superpower most commonly seeking to assert its economic and political interests in its allegedly superior social system. 
which we know is not true, because it is our natural class enemies that are engaging in these militaristic uh, pursuits whereby working people pay the price. It stands out that there's a need for engagement with workers and a real necessity to bring workers into the struggle for peace and justice. Now, Shirley stole some of my thunder there um, on, on some of our history. We're quite proud of. That's okay, comrade. Shout out from the rooftops. Um, but the refusal of Warpies to load pig iron to Japan in 37 was a significant dispute for peace. Warpies said that pig iron would come back in the form of bombs and bullets. And it was a great struggle for peace, and they were right. Wolfie's banning Dutch ships for Indonesian independence was an act of peace and justice, and they were right, and they were successful. Bans on French ships and cargo during the South Pacific nuclear testing were embraced and supported by workers, and they were right. Actions by seafarers and wharfies refusing to sail and load armaments for the American war in Vietnam led to the refusal of seafarers to sail on the Boonaroo and wharfies refusing to load the Japarit, and they were right. Despite being right, on every occasion we are labelled as criminals opposing the national interest. And that criticism reflects the class bias against the views of workers as they challenge capital's war drive. On each occasion, workers' actions threatened the boss's profits. Profits come from war. War is big business, and for many global corporations, the basis of obscene profits which uh, you know, are the basis of their corporate existence. A snapshot of the union's peace policy in a, is we've held a, a long held Our national conferences consistently deal with questions of peace because we mean it when we say peace is union business to sort of headline what our peace policy is. I suppose that is it. Peace is union business. We impose perigalist war and we call for the troops you know, engaged in non-humanitarian uh, exercises to be brought home. We fight for global disarmament and we oppose the military bases. There's been a lot of talk recently and some boneheads in the superannuation industry have started to spark up a, uh, a bit of a discussion around nuclear power and so on. We recognise the threat of the nuclear industry and oppose it. We oppose mining, transportation and handling of radioactive materials. We oppose the, even the concept that many people put around the place and those on the payroll of the nuclear industry, that it's a clean and green industry. It's, that's a good line, a good line in it. Eh? You've got to be dead set bony to, to believe it. But anyway, the people put that stuff out and people believe what comes on the TV and, uh, and so on. So we've got to continue to campaign. We oppose a nuclear weapons, recognise their threat and call for disarmament and we want to see the closure of uranium mines. Um, we've had that position for a long time, we maintain that position and we'll continue to maintain that position. Now the bottom line is that we are fighting capitalism and any failing to identify the very social and economic basis of war, injustice and exploitation will result in us being a mere cheer squad shouting from the sidelines. Capitalism means war. So it's quite clear from my perspective who the enemy is and what we need to do. Our job is to build a movement for change. And that requires the working class. Not alone, but not without. And IPAN and its constituents' organisations must reach out to the labour movement and beyond. And it's up to the MUA and unions involved in the peace movement to assist and develop this position. And that's why we're here. And that's why our union's here and remains within IPAN.
such an IPAN to engage and support workers in struggle. Well, workers and unions, reality will not support IPAN. And workers recognise and rarely forget those who aid them in struggle. And conversely, those who drive convoys of middle-class affluence into mining communities and tell workers in the community that they should be thrown onto the scrap heap and will never, will never win the support of workers. A lesson many in the climate movement have learnt since to recognise and fairly promote the class basis and class divide between the most powerful, warmongering, privileged elites and the needs and aspirations of workers and ordinary people from wherever they come from. We have no common interests with our bosses and governments. Those same warmongering elite are our bosses and their governments who attack organised labour, our democratic rights, our health and education systems and who privatise our public assets. So workers fighting their bosses are fighting the same battle as you in the peace movement. The movement against climate catastrophe is fighting the same forces and the fact that war is the greatest threat to the survival of all life on the planet links all our struggles in the peace movement, the environment movements and the trade union movement. Now bosses recognise the role that workers can play and this is one of the reasons we are seeing the implementation of some of the most reactionary laws in the Ensuring Integrity Bill. This is a union-busting bill. And if unions are busted, and I've got to say our union's on the top of the list, the battle for peace becomes so much harder. This reactionary legislation reflects a balance of class forces in society towards employers that will also challenge the peace movement as society shifts further to the right. Now, while we may demand the rule of law, in, uh, and this is a question that pops up about the rule of law, um, and there's been some discussion about it over the past few days. The problem that arises nationally, and I would suggest probably internationally to some extent, is that the rule of anti-people reactionary law is the rule of the bosses. And our practical reality is, is that extreme unjust laws must be opposed and challenged as they are anti-democratic laws and tools of oppression. They remove our rights and our capacity to stand up to the injustice that brings us all here together. Now, in a practical sense, I'd like to raise a couple of points. Arising out of the 2017 IPAN conference in Melbourne, which was a wonderful conference, we attempted to set up peace and justice a union business groups that sought to undertake the task of connecting workers, particularly those organised within the trade union movement. Now, this was a positive development, but one that did not reach its full potential, largely through a lack of defined purpose, dedicated leadership and a lack of general direction. I would like to promote this idea once again, and possibly our plans were too ambitious. Our attempted scope of work may be too large. And we need to find a fix to this issue and reset the program. Possibly it needs to be activated in smaller regional or state bite-sized chunks and not solely nationally. If we could bring together unions in this organised framework, we're only a few steps away from the capacity to have national organisation of unions fighting for peace and affiliated to IPAN. It's a logical step and we can move towards that, I think, in a very practical and real way. 
The programme of Peace and Justice, a union business, should remain tightly focused in its scope around the main issues that build the broadest solidarity and unity. And it looks like we put forward maybe a few of those points that we see could be the basis. Opposition to imperialist wars and wars of aggression. Oppose the US alliance and remove the bases. An independent and peaceful Australia. Recognise the peace movement and the trade union movement are fighting the same struggles against the same enemies. And solidarity to all peoples in struggle for peace and justice. Where there is injustice, our union will continue to be there. We will rally and will support the cause. We see it as a class-based responsibility. And that's because there's no separation around the struggle for workers' rights, for justice and for peace. It is a path we will continue on and proudly work with IPAN and other peace organisations for the development of the biggest and broadest movement we can create to fight for the future of humanity and a peaceful world. Comrades, thank you very much. We are in a massive dispute on the waterfront with DP World, a huge Dubai-based multinational tax-avoiding monolith. And um, they are really coming very hard over some really critical issues for workers on the waterfront. They want to outsource our work. They want us to effectively negotiate a position where we hand over our jobs to non-union labour so they can come in and work next to us, not be in the union and work at a lower rate. Good luck on that. Um, it's not something we're ever going to negotiate. If they want it, they're going to have to drive over our dead bodies to get it because we're just not going there. They want to automate us. Now, they say they don't want to automate and we say, well, put it in the agreement. You don't want to automate. No, we can't do that. Well, so we want protections around automation uh, and what that means. There's a whole range. We're fighting for domestic violence leave. We want 10 days domestic violence leave. And um, the boss says, we've got a policy. It's discretionary. What's that mean? You've got to go to HR and undergo an examination from a HR manager or something so they can make a discretionary determination of whether or not you get any leave. That's just so offensive. So offensive. And we're standing up to that and we're fighting it. And we're fighting a whole range of the, the uh, reactionary positions put to us by DP World. And we've kicked off, because we fight internationally, and we've kicked off a, quite an amazing international campaign and dockers' unions from all around the world are coming to our aid, standing up and fighting, as we do for them. We learned the, list, the lesson as workers from the Liverpool dockers' dispute in 1996. And we have organised dock workers internationally in the most amazing way, and it's an incredible, incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful thing. Internationalism, there's nothing like it. And especially in an era when we're all working for the same bosses, all the same big multinational corporations, the very much the slogan, workers of the world unite, is a practical reality in being able to prosecute and defend your position. We've got some, Dan's got some um, placards uh, up there, if you can hold them up there. If we could, we would impose upon you comrades to, we've got a few of these, we've, we've been getting people all around the world Workers, um, we've had the most incredible response. Incredible response from Iraqi dockers. You know, talk about doing it tough. And, and, and what we want is we want to put those signs up with you today and hopefully you can express solidarity with those workers at DP World along with our comrades all around the world who are fighting this uh, global multinational corporation. And we're going to fight them until we win.
and we're going to be with you comrades in the peace movement until we win peace, until we win an independent Australia, until we uh, can get over the top of the horrible reactionary class-based nature that capitalism throws up in its, its ills and negativity for all people across the planet, including the survival of the planet. So let's all work together, let's build this movement and let's fight for what is our common interest and the interest of every single person on the planet. So thank you very much. For and you've been listening to a speech by Warren Smith, the Secretary of the MUA, speaking at the IPAN Independent Peaceful Australia Network Conference in Darwin a couple of weeks ago. And that was his speech to the conference. Hello, I am Gabriel Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle, a challenge to make, but it can just go higher and higher and higher. Support 3CR. Early this morning I spoke with Dr. Tim Anderson. What's the latest that you've heard about what's happening in Syria? There's been a peace talks in one area. What are you hearing? There's ongoing peace talks in the Astana process, which is to say focused on Iran, Russia and Turkey. And uh, they've negotiated a series of ceasefires, but every time the... HTS, Nusra Al-Qaeda groups have breached those ceasefires and therefore the Syrians have responded. So it's been stop-start, like a um, you know a car sort of going forward and slamming on the brakes and going forward again for some weeks. The Syrian army, has, in the meantime, has been actually making progress in pushing those groups out of, almost completely out of North Hama now. They've certainly entered some towns in Idlib now. They're trying to cut off some of the main centres in southern Idlib. What's it like in Iblib? Could you explain what the area is like? We're hearing a lot about it and sort of stories that everyone's being bombed and people are dying. What's the story that you know? There's very good video of it. I'm posting it at the Hands Off Syria site and a number of of sites are posting it. Of course, we're swamped by the Western media because the Western media is just pumping out the war narrative, basically. But um, there's very good video of what actually of the fighting itself and the drone footage of the air attacks and so on. Basically, they've been attacking, the Russians and the Syrians from the air have been attacking supply lines, depots, headquarters of the groups, basically. Um, with the, the number of drones that are in the air now, Jan, there's quite, you can see very clearly targets being lined up and hit. So there's a, there's a huge amount of that information available, but of course, you're not getting it through the corporate media, basically. And the other side too, of course, the other side have cruder drones that are being sent in to try and bomb the air bases and hitting civilians in Latakia and Aleppo and so on. So people have been killed there. Drones are coming from largely uh, northwest Idlib into Latakia, basically, but also on the other side, on the eastern side, into Aleppo. And this is why the Syrians can't tolerate an al-Qaeda-held part of Idlib. They've basically occupied about 80% of Idlib, and now the Syrian army is cutting into that and starting to roll it back. But the use of drones now is changing the face of warfare, is that what you're saying? It is. Uh, in, in most cases, the, the Al-Qaeda groups are using them 
more armed drones. The Syrian and Russian side are using them more for precision targeting, basically. So you see that the drones are sending signals on coordinates back to artillery and to airstrikes. And you can see, for example, tanks or buildings or missile launches being lined up. And you can, you can actually see the, the detail of them. And you can see the coordinates being sent back. And then you can see a, a missile or, um, or a bomb coming in, basically, and destroying that particular target. So drones are making possible, at that level, are making possible very targeted strikes. Then at the ground level, you've got some Russian journalists um, from Anna News, and they post on YouTube called Ara New Videos, who are embedded with the Syrian troops, the, mainly the Tiger forces on the front line. And you can see exactly what's going on when they enter a village. And they are also getting footage from the Al-Qaeda groups who post their own, sometimes their own victories, but often uh, you know, also their retreats as well. So there's quite a lot of direct video of the front line available at the moment. Who are the suppliers of Al-Qaeda at the moment? Mainly uh, the US, NATO and Turkey, basically. In the south, Israel is still supplying them in the south, and um, regularly the Syrians are still finding caches. When they liberate an area, they find the, you know, the weapons that are left behind as they, as they rush out. And it's, Turkey, of course, has a very big role in Idlib. The US has a much bigger role in the southeast of Syria, in Al-Tanf and east of the Euphrates. But it's, the Turkish army is very closely embedded with those groups. And there's a very good video this morning from South Front on YouTube. If you want to go and see South Front, they are showing how the different groups have changed their names and morphed into each other to try and hide the international bans on the Jabhat al-Nusra and also to uh, link up with the, the Turkish um, the Turkish created groups. And as we said last time we spoke, they still keep on saying this is a civil war. Yeah, they say it's a civil war and they keep talking about moderate rebels basically. But, well, if you look at South Front, if you look at our new videos, um, you look at the Hands Off Syria site, you can see a lot of direct video of the fighting that's actually going on in South Idlib now. What's your feeling about what's happening to Iran at the moment with what appears to me to be the start of a blockade of Iran? Yes, they blockaded Iran and Venezuela at the same time, actually. Basically, the US doesn't seem to be able to tolerate the existence of independent political will or independent strong states. In the case of Iran, Iran is a very strong state in the Middle East. It's the one big strong state with some capacity that's firmly against um, being co-opted by the US, basically. That's why they're targeting it. And Iran, of course, is supporting the armed resistance in Palestine. It's supporting the resistance in Lebanon, which blocked the Israelis' annexing of South Lebanon. It's supporting Syria. It's supporting the independent militia in Iraq. In some respects, it's supporting the independent government in Yemen now, too. So that's why there's such a, an obsession by Israel and the US on Iran. It's really the, the major player in the alliance that's gaining, gathering strength basically against all of these wars, all of them driven by the US. How many countries are the US likely to get to support them in what they're trying to achieve in, in Iran? Well, they had a lot when they were doing the nuclear process um, over the previous um, decade or so. Surprisingly, they had a coalition with the Europeans and Russia and China. In other words, they had the whole Security Council 10 years ago, um, which placed a lot of pressure on Iran, why they, um, against 
some of their better judgment, they went down that path because it was really a unilateral disarmament process that um, they weren't trying to take nuclear weapons away from Israel, for example. And the, the Iranians never had any nuclear weapons. But anyway, they were under a lot of pressure then. But Trump, through his particular brand of politics, has managed to alienate the Europeans. So the Europeans, for example, uh, only Britain really has decided to jump on this thing of getting a naval blockade of the Straits of Hormuz. Germany's rejected it. Japan's rejected it. France has also not bought into it because France, had, had, although they're very aggressive in terms of their NATO involvement, they have really were more committed to opening up commercial relationships with Iran. So it's mainly Britain, and now Israel's decided to jump in, which is a further aggravation to that, a dangerous aggravation to that, that situation in the Persian Gulf. And Australia? Australia apparently has said they'll be involved in something, whether they've done anything, I'm not sure. Unfortunately and you know, disgracefully, it's uh, what we've seen from Australian governments of all types. You might remember Bob Hawke with the first Gulf War almost 30 years ago now. There's just been a constant. The, the current government, of course, has been involved in Iraq, has been involved in Syria, and uh, even though when the nuclear deal was announced, I remember Julie Bishop as the foreign minister rushed over to Tehran to start doing business, but whether it's business or war, they, they seem to take their instructions from, from Washington. The, you've seen the, the Europeans, for example, with the collapse of the nuclear deal with Iran, for example, they made a lot of noise about wanting to keep that deal going and having business with Iran, but when Trump threatened them, threatened them with um, economic retaliation, basically, for doing business with Iran, they all turned to water. There was very little independent political will in, in Europe, even if they genuinely wanted to re-establish some normal commercial relations with Iran, it was quite humiliating for them to be exposed, to be so compliant with whatever who was in Washington wanted. Can you explain what the sanctions actually mean for the US? Because they seem to have sanctions on just about every country they don't like, and they involve other countries as well. What does it mean for the people of the US with all these trade sanctions? Well, yeah, that's right. We've had experience of this, of being able to observe this with Cuba and, and many other countries, um, North Korea, of course. But the, uh, last time I looked at the Office of Financial Assets Control, that's a branch within the U.S. Treasury, there's 25 countries with unilateral sanctions against them by the U.S. And then you've got extra countries that come under their broader sanctions, like um, they want to dominate the control of drugs, in the Americas, for example. So, you know, they've got this DEA program and so on. So there's some other, and also allegedly financing of terrorists. So that, well, they've got Iran on one of those lists for supposedly financing terrorists, mainly because Iran supports most of the Palestinian factions. That's, and also they support Hashid al-Shabi and Hezbollah, for example, who are really effectively national resistance groups. So the sanctions are very extensive. They're in virtually all of them in breach of international law. There is international law on the use of sanctions and it involves certain you know, considerations about proportional retaliation in terms of economic disputes and so on. But basically, the US for some decades has been using it as a tool of war, effectively. It's economic war. It's become integrated with part of their propaganda wars and their non-conventional wars, you know, the use of terrorist groups and their conventional wars. They integrate together. Now, the third-party side of it is also quite illegal, and the Europeans have developed a, 
a mechanism to try and avoid this, but they haven't really been able to implement it properly. What it means is, and we've seen it with Cuba a lot, for example, they will say this is all an illegitimate regime which is trading in stolen goods. You know, their rationale with Cuba is about the, some of the companies nationalised back in the early 1960s. And so if a, say, European company has 10% or more U.S. shareholdings in them, and a lot of them do because there's a lot of cross-ownership between European and U.S. companies, they will fine, in quotes, fine them for breach of the sanctions. So the best example of that is that uh, it didn't really happen under Bush very much, but under Obama, uh, over eight years, there were several billion dollars in fines of main banks, Credit Suisse, I forget the names of some of the others. Several, they were fined, huge fines, some of them hundreds of millions of dollars because it was mainly a combination of facilitating financial exchange with Iran, Cuba, and sometimes one or two other countries like Burma, for example, but mainly Iran and Cuba. So under Obama, there was a lot of third-party economic sanctioning, economic aggression against European banks because they were just doing what banks do. They just wanted to finance business, basically. And the Europeans weren't party to those sanctions against um, Iran and Cuba. They were party to the sanctions against Iran up until the nuclear deal. And now, well, it's like the U.S. jailing that... Um, getting arrested that Chinese executive of Huawei and, and getting her extradited from Canada, that whole process. Canada's not even part to these party to these sanctions against Iran, let alone China, but because Huawei doing business with Iran, they've arrested this Chinese executive. So it's a very toxic thing that's, that's uh, involved of um, a lot of third parties, involved the U.S. creating conflict with its um, so-called friends as well as its so-called enemies. So what you're saying is that it doesn't actually impact on U.S. businesses or the U.S. public having all these sanctions. Oh, yes, it does. That's what uh, I mean. It, it, it certainly does. Well, in relation to Cuba, you know that for a long time now, the U.S. citizens have been banned from being tourists in Cuba. They, can, they still travel there, but they've got to have some pretext. They're a journalist or they're involved in some sort of activ- authorised activity or, they, or they, in the past they used to need a licence. Now, Australian citizens are, are affected too because if you're an Australian citizen who's visited Iran or North Korea, now they may deny you a visa, for example. That doesn't affect us with Cuba, but it affects us with Iran now because of the extensiveness of these sort of um, unilateral laws that the US is putting out. And it affects you in a business sense too because if you go to these countries, you, you can't use, for example, an Australian credit card, uh, Australian in, in inverted commas, because... All of the private Australian banks have very large U.S. shareholdings, therefore they're subject to the OFAC, U.S. Treasury laws and so on, otherwise they get fined. So if you want to go and an Australian citizen wants to go down and draw some, get some U.S. dollars from a bank, for example, or from, a, from anywhere, the financial agency will ask you where you're going because they are at risk of being fined by the U.S. if they're selling you U.S. dollars to go and use them in Iran or Cuba or... Syria or wherever it is, and the other side to that is if you are in those countries, you'll find that your credit card it doesn't work and may be blocked. Does that mean that Australian citizens will find it difficult to get to Venezuela now? Yes, um, although with Venezuela, because of the hyperinflation, there's been other problems there. Um, but in terms of getting to Venezuela, not necessarily, but um, I would avoid going through the US these days because there is such a a risk of arbitrary arrest and detention in the US now for 
what's in your passport, where you've been, where you're going and so on. There's a great deal of surveillance. They, they are asking people now to register online, even though there's, a v, there's still a visa waiver scheme where you get a, a visa for the US on arrival, but now they're saying they're going to not allow that for people who've been to certain countries under sanction. And they're asking people to register online before they arrive. It's more or less like they're asking people to travellers to um, assist with their intelligence gathering too. Canada's doing it too, by the way, too. Canada has picked it up from the US and even though it's different in Canada because you can transit Canada, if you're passing through, for example, you can transit Canada, but they are asking people to register online too. But the US is the most aggressive about all of these things and they're becoming aggressive about people arriving in the US who've been to countries they have under these unilateral sanctions. Can I take you to the other side of the world and what's happening in Hong Kong? Well, it's a process that, you know, it's a reluctance to this gradual process of being integrated into China. I mean, Hong Kong's been part of China for over 20 years now, but there's been a one country, two systems process where theoretically it applies to Taiwan too, but practically not much. But in Hong Kong, it has been gradually being sort of drawn into the slowly integrated into China and there's been a reaction against this. In Hong Kong there's there's also, a lot of this has been driven by people in the financial sector who are very concerned about being extradited for financial crimes in China. That sort of stuff they take very seriously. They they treat uh, white collar crime very seriously in the, in the People's Republic of China. So some of those financial people and the hedge funds have been at the forefront of some of these protest movements but there also is a popular level of involvement in those movements too. Of course, to complicate matters, the US has got involved and started funding it and so on. So it's starting more and more to look like and starting to be called more and more of a, a coal revolution. I mean, after all, they're not really going to... No-one's really going to slow down this process. Uh, Hong Kong's not going to be recognised as an independent state. It's really, it seems to me, people trying to stall the gradual process of the, the one country, two systems thing slowly... Um, eroding some of those independent sort of prerogatives that Hong Kong had. It seems um, this, these demonstrations have come fairly early because it's a, a long time before Hong Kong becomes officially integrated with China. Yes, I'm not sure exactly the whole schedule, but as I said, it's been 20 years so far. But it's still got... 30 to go. Years. Yeah, quite a long time to go too, but... Um, the pinch is being felt more, I believe, at the, at the financial side of things because Hong Kong's been such an important financial hub for such a long time. And as I said, the People's Republic, basically Beijing, let's say, Beijing is really very harsh on, on financial white-collar crimes. Is there a danger, do you believe, that this, these demonstrations continue, that the, the Chinese army could come across the border? Oh, yeah, it's, it's, they're apparently on the other side of the border now. I mean, they do have a role in, um, in if, the, if the protests get out of hand. What um, sort of a role? No, they've got, they've got hardware, they've got military hardware there in, in case of... Um, yeah, but what right do they have to do that? To, to, to police it, to put it down, basically, if there's, if there's violent insurrection, basically. There's been a certain level of violence, but not uh, to the point where there's been intervention yet. But it's certainly on their agenda, you know, that at some level there could be there could be intervention, paramilitary intervention. No, I'm just wondering what the law says about them coming across the border and with their army to put down a, re a rebellion. They, they, do have, they do have a role. It's part of their system that, that, that they, 
what I forget what it's called actually, but there's been report. You can see the pictures of the there there are serious um, paramilitary type hardware on the other side of the border there and um, ready in case the situation gets worse. And what's all that's been happening at the moment to do with the fact that America's in decline and China's on the up and up? Where does well, it all fit yeah. in? Well, exactly. That's the big game. Isn't it? The big game now is not just in relation to China, really, more correctly, it's in relation to Eurasia. The US, you're right, the US is an economy in decline, it's an empire in decline, and it's dangerous in that situation. And its, it's main obsession is that this whole integration of Europe and Asia, particularly the roles of China and Russia, who they're, they're most jealous of, but the, the integration of Europe and Asia is going to make obsolete the U.S. role and the occupation of the U.S. of parts of Europe and parts of Asia, basically. So, of course, they're most focused on the rise of China and the rise and the independent will in Russia. They are playing every game that they can in terms of the encirclement of China, you know, from the Korean Peninsula to the Philippines to Taiwan and so on. So economically, all of this, the trade war with China and the, the attempt to prevent Huawei or, or Chinese technology from leapfrogging U.S. leadership in areas of technology. That's that's the new great game that we're involved in at the moment. It's cooked out for quite a while. Sure, sure. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Jan. And that, of course, was Dr. Tim Anderson speaking about lots of world affairs that are um, a bit nasty at the moment. I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that you're listening to 3CR on, what's that frequency again, dear? 855, I told you, Helen. 855. And what is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done. On the evening of the 4th of April, 2018, the 50th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., Seven peace activists entered Kings Bay Naval Base in Georgia, USA, for a nuclear disarmament action aimed at the Trident submarines that are based there, the largest nuclear submarine base in the world. They called themselves Kings Bay Plowshares, after the instructions of the Book of Isaiah to beat swords into plowshares. Sixteen months later, on the 7th of August this year, the seven presented oral arguments in a federal district court in Brunswick, Georgia, to urge dismissal of the charges resulting from the non-violent action, which leaves them facing 25 years in a U.S. prison. And as many as 100 supporters travelled throughout the country to attend the hearing. One of those was Cathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Cathy, what occurred on the 7th of August? Well, you know, there was an overflow group of 100 people who wanted to enter the courtroom. And so I remained outside. I mean, uh, Martin Sheen, the actor, was there. The um, family members of defendants were there. And quite a number of support people. And so um, I thought I would uh, remain outside. But then uh, for the last 20 minutes, I was able to enter into the courtroom for the oral arguments that were being presented. And, it, and I'm, I'm very riveted by the way in which the lead lawyer, a man named Bill Quigley, is able to address courts with regard to civil disobedience. And the judge 
was, I would say, um, very thoughtful and considerate. She wanted to make sure that each of the defendants had a chance to speak, and she listened carefully to the presentations made by lawyers. Some of the defendants are representing themselves, and others are being represented by lawyers. And she also said that she would consider motions to at least have the uh, ankle monitors removed from the legs of the four defendants who are out on their own personal recognizance, and that would be something they would look forward to a great deal. It's almost like wearing leg irons. Those ankle bracelets are heavy and cumbersome, and they they have to be indoors by 8.30 every night and seek permission to make any move beyond a certain radius of where they live. And she also said that she would try to set a an actual court date promptly, but prompt in terms of the courts is not a matter of weeks. It'll more likely be a matter of months. So there was some hope uh, everybody harbored that she might dismiss the case, but I think the trial will go forward. I could perhaps mention, if you like, what it was that I found so stirring in Bill Quigley's testimony. Bill said that there have been people in the history of the United States who were deemed criminal and, in fact, uh, convicted and jailed, including the civil rights hero uh, Rosa Parks and the suffragist uh, Susan B. Anthony. And then later they were extolled as being people of great prophetic witness. And he also then mentioned Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a minister, a Lutheran minister, who uh, was very much a part of the German opposition, church and clerical opposition to Adolf Hitler. And at one point he was arrested and tried and convicted and imprisoned, sentenced to death, and he was executed. He was beheaded in the prison. But he has, uh, through his writings and through that very courageous witness, been somebody who now is part of the curriculum in religious studies and theological studies all over the world and his biography and his writings are studied carefully. And uh, Denzel noted that were just one of the Trident missiles, nuclear missiles, to be launched, the consequences would be far, far worse than anything that Hitler or Stalin combined had created. You know, we just uh, one of those missiles is the equivalent of 1,825 Hiroshima blasts. Kathy... What was it like in in the courtroom with the seven who haven't seen each other for many, many months? Well, of course, it's a very tender reunion when they are able to see one another. And I should mention also that uh, Liz Berrigan turned 79 while she was in the county jail. She's been held in county jail since April 4th of 2018. She was able to have a contact visit with her three children, and, and also then had a visit from Martin Sheen, the actor, uh, and then the children were again able to be in the courtroom as their mother entered the court. Uh, and that we were very, very grateful that it was a contact visit. Usually the visits in the county jails are um, through a very thick plexiglass screen, and then you speak into a phone, and, and, and your, your loved one on the other side of the screen is also speaking into a phone, but there's no contact but they were allowed this contact visit. Each of the defendants that have been in the county jail did send messages out to us. I, I received uh, Steve Kelly's message. They, they only can communicate by filling in very small postcards, like a 
three and a half by two and a half inch postcards pre-stamped. And so uh, in very small cramped writing, Steve Kelly, a Jesuit priest who's also been in the, uh, this county jail, Southern County Jail, since April 3rd of 2018, wrote to say that uh, he wished all of us well and that uh, he, he wanted to quote Reverend Daniel Berrigan, also a Jesuit priest who has died several years back um, but was a plowshares activist. And, and Berrigan said, being in front of a judge is like being pelted to death by popcorn. <laughs> but, but he encouraged us to, to gather together and uh, again watch a film called The Nuns, the Priests, and the Bomb, which is uh, for focusing on past plowshares actions, the, the disarm now plowshares and the transform now plowshares actions and encouraging us to see where we fit in on this continuum of opposition to nuclear weapons. And everyone has to remember that these seven people are peace activists. They're not mass murderers. Oh, my goodness, yeah. They are very accomplished peace activists, I think, because they've devoted their lives to meeting the needs of the neediest of people, and they, they think that's part and parcel of working for peace. You make peace with your neighbors by extending the hand of friendship and trying to find out what your neighbor needs. And so all of them have been involved in shelters and houses of hospitality and and also um, taking steps to go to war zones with various peace teams uh, and, and different educational kinds of pursuits as well. They're a very talented group. They would never, ever want to be uh, possessing a weapon, much less using one to harm another person. I'm just trying to think what it must be like for a 79-year-old to be in a southern county jail. Well, the southern county jails are difficult. I, I know from some experience that uh, there's very little oversight over the jailers, and they can do what they want at, at whim. And when they're housing federal prisoners, they they do get you know a sum of money every month to clothe and feed the prisoners, but. The, the seven have very rarely been able to go outside to get fresh air, and the food is, is really quite bad. They don't have um, very easy access to books or magazines or newsletters, and yet they've made friends with the other prisoners, and they haven't tried to complain or call attention to themselves as people who should experience anything other than what the other prisoners experience, because all of the people in prison, I think, in a sense, are political prisoners. Our political situation in the United States has allowed for mass incarceration that has caused enormous suffering both to prisoners and to their families and their communities. The day in court was just one of many days of actions. Can you t talk about the other times, what you were doing? Well, we decided to draw together as many as we could. And, and as I said, there were 100 on the day of the oral arguments inside the court. But uh, about 88 people came to Georgia for four days, from Hiroshima Day to Nagasaki Day, of uh, vigils and fasting. And there were 33 of us doing a, a liquids-only fast. And um, we first went out to the base on August 6th on Hiroshima Day and at 8.15 in the morning, our time, which was the time in Japan when the bomb was dropped on August 6th. We fanned out in front of the entrance to the base and a, a Buddhist monk chanted and drummed and we held up signs and certainly wanted to give a message to all of the people working at the base 
to all of the passers-by that this is a, a terrible danger. It can be labeled, labeled omnicide, the proliferation of nuclear weapons, the United States possession of so many weapons of mass destruction. And then we gathered the next day at the courtroom on August 7th, and we weren't sure if possibly the court dates would be August 7th and 8th. As it turned out, it was only August 7th. But we used August 8th as a day for a lot of teaching and learning. We heard two extremely fine presentations from Don Mosley, who is in his late 70s and, and could recall being the person who spoke before a gathering in this exact same place at Kings Bay, Georgia, uh, back in 1978. Uh, and then we heard from Steve Baggerly, who has put together a very helpful pamphlet called Nuclear Weapons or Us. And he and another activist, Anthony Donovan, have worked steadily on the international coalition against nuclear weapons. And, you know, I think they are now up to 28 countries that have ratified the treaty. And the, this treaty that would prohibit nuclear weapons, if it's actually signed into international law, it will make a big difference. And then we were also brought up to date on the various cities that have um, passed legislation in their own cities, reflecting what the prohibition on nuclear weapons would bring about. And it's pretty strict, you know, if you, and I know you're Michael Kirby, a former high court judge, has urged Australia to sign on to this treaty and ratify it. Once a country has signed on to it, they agree then that no longer will there be a permission for research or commercial sales or development of any parts or, or any activities related to the development, the sale, the production, the use of nuclear weapons. Well, once they get the required number, it doesn't really matter if countries like the US and Australia don't sign because they have to agree to the conditions. Well, that's true. And I, I believe they need... 51. They're halfway there now. Yeah, 51. And they've got, I think they went up to 28. Just remind us, Kathy, of why the seven peace activists are facing 25 years jail. The charge for trespass or uh, depredation to property, to gov government property, doesn't carry those draconian sentencing lengths. But they've also been accused of sabotage. The, the charges that we hoped would be dropped haven't been dropped, conspiracy and sabotage. And so that's what brings in the much lengthier sentencing possibility. Now, it, it should be mentioned that Mark Colville and Steve Kelly and Liz McAllister, having been in prison for this year, will get that year of credit so that if they're sentenced to more than a year and a half in prison, by the time they go to trial, if they are convicted, if they would be then sentenced, they would at least have a year and a half, more or less, taken off of their sentence for time served. Uh, but those who've been out on the monitors wouldn't have any, you know, the clock isn't ticking for them, more or less, in terms of how much time they would have to spend if they're given a sentence of more than uh, the, the four months that they already spent in prison. You said this is only a hearing, that there's a trial later. Will they have a different judge? Well, I think now the judge that they have, uh, Lisa Goodday, is the one that's going to be with them. But the previous judge, Judge Kingsborough, had read their request to be able to use the religious 
Freedom Restoration Act as part of their argument as to why they were innocent as part of their defense. And he wrote an 80-page paper, and he agreed that they are people of devout faith and that they did the action they did in line with their, their deeply held faith beliefs. And he expressed his admiration for their integrity in that regard. But he went on to say, nevertheless, this Religious Freedom Restoration Act cannot be applied to them as part and, and used as part of their defense. So they can't use the necessity defense. It's never allowed in U.S. courts in these kinds of cases. They can't use the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And so th- this kind of hampers what they're able to say about why they did what they did. Just for a few minutes, Kathy, can you talk about the wider world scene at the moment, particularly what's happening with the, the U.S. threatening Iran? So the double standard, of course, is is very, very troubling. Um, I mean, Israel has thermonuclear weapons, but because it won't declare their possession, they are never, ever subjected to any kind of investigation from the International Atomic Energy Association. Meanwhile, the same group, the IAEA, has said, look, Iran has been in complete compliance with what we've asked for. You know, the United States walked away from the joint comprehensive plan of action. And all along, the IAEA was saying, well, yeah, Iran is in compliance. They've given us open access to every kind of plant or base that's got anything to do with their possession of materials for nuclear energy and their potential to move toward a nuclear bomb. Meanwhile, the United States has been bringing the technology to Saudi Arabia and signing off on Saudi Arabia's uh, permissions, uh, kind of seven green lights have been issued so far with no involvement of the U.S. Congress. It was just a presidential decision to say, yes, the Saudis can keep moving ahead, developing nuclear energy. But it's not so difficult to move from nuclear energy to nuclear weapons. And that's why it's so important to have the oversight of the International Atomic Energy Association and the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty Conference people involved. But they're not. And so Saudi Arabia could be moving toward becoming another nuclear-armed state in the region. And, and this is very, very, very dangerous. Of course, India and Pakistan both have the bomb, and there's uh, heightened tension over Kashmir. And, you know, as long as the, the states that possess the nuclear weapons won't pay any attention to the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, you know, the United States has now walked away from one other treaty that involved Russia, and that was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Weapons Pact. Well, it just seems like the Bulletin of Atomic Science decision to put the clock, you know, two minutes to midnight in terms of the danger that we're in for a, a potential nuclear weapon disaster must surely be moving forward. And it's a, an intensely dangerous time, and I would say most people in the world are barely even aware of the danger in which we are right now sitting. And then is it really about these weapons or is it the fact that the U.S. has been after Iran for many, many years? Oh, I think, yes, the United States has put Iran in its axis of evil and it wants to have uh, U.S. control over 
the waterways that uh, are part of Iran's coastline. We'd like to show support for Saudi Arabia, which has antagonism toward Iran in terms of uh, strength within the Middle East. And Israel also has antagonism toward Iran, and so the United States, I think, is supporting its allies. Uh, and the sanctions are beginning to exact a, a, a difficult toll economically for people in Iran. And we saw that process over 13 years of economic sanctions against Iraq move toward the country being broken and battered, and there was no mercy. There was also no education about what was happening in the United States with regard to Iraq. Iraq was in the news every day when the United States, States again said, okay, now we're going to bomb and invade again. So I think the United States has, in a sense, used its nuclear weapon possession to more or less hold a gun to the head of every other country in the world. You know, if you hold a gun to somebody else's head, you are committing a crime. You are violating that person's rights just by virtue of the fact that you've got your finger on the trigger and you're holding the gun. And, and that's how these plowshares activists see the United States' possession of nuclear weapons, even if they're not used. They are creating a great harm and a great danger and a great violation to the rights of other people all around the world. And then there's the, the worry that if the U.S. does move on Iran, what will Russia do? Well, of course, um, we don't have very good diplomatic relations with Russia right now, so it's very difficult to anticipate what would happen, but it, uh, we certainly believe it's an extremely dangerous time. In Chicago, our, our group is out every Tuesday morning distributing leaflets and trying to educate people about Iran and about the tensions. You know, and we, we want people to know that Iran is surrounded by no less than nine United States major military bases. Iran's military is, in, in 15 days, the entire military budget of Iran would be spent by the Pentagon if you compare Iran's military budget to that of the United States. And we mustn't forget what's happening to the Palestinians and I know you had a very successful three days of actions in Chicago recently. Well we were so grateful to all the people who poured energy into holding a Chicago River free Gaza flotilla and it was 17 kayaks and three electric boats and quite a good shore presence and great display of banners we did. We have beautiful bridges over the Chicago River, and we dropped a 20-foot banner over three successive bridges that said Israel stop killing Palestinians. And I think probably one of the most important events of that three-day span was actually the presentation night when uh, somebody who grew up in Gaza, Jihad Abu Salim, addressed us, and he held up. 31 sheets of paper, and in single spacing, the names were listed of just the people in July of 2016 who were killed during a, a, what was called Operation Protective Edge, an aerial assault by the Israelis against the Gazans. You know, all told, that summer there were, uh, I believe, 2,100 people killed. Jihad, when he was looking over those names, spotted names of people he knew personally. And, of course, it's uh, been said by the United Nations that in 2020, I mean, that's not very far away, Gaza is likely to become uninhabitable. Believe it or not, the equivalent of three Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of sewage 
flows out from Gaza because they have no sewage and sanitation system every day. Every day, three Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of sewage flows out off the shore. And they, the fisher people can't move out further into the waters where there are many, many fish and they could actually, you know, begin to build up their industry. Instead, they're, they're contained in an area where it's very difficult for them to catch fish. The farmers have been suffering because of um, bulldozing of their orchards and their fields. The, the situation is unlivable. So we, we also went to Boeing Corporation, headquartered in Chicago, on one day of those uh, Free Gaza Flotilla events, and we had life-size puppets of mourning mothers holding lifeless babies, and we read the names of the people killed by aerial assaults in Gaza, and we named all of the different weapons that Boeing sells to Israel, and they include joint defense ammunition kits, small diameter bombs that then release the very terrible dense inert metal explosive weapons, the uh, harpoon system that enables the Israelis to blockade the uh, coastline of Gaza, Apache helicopter, Hellfire missiles. It's just a, a an obscene profit-making aspect of Boeing. Uh, and, and so, you know, a lot of people think, well, Boeing's in a mess because of its failure to ensure the safety of its passenger jets and the two very, very catastrophic crashes of Boeing-manufactured jets. But Boeing's even greater mess is its responsibility for arming Israel, which has used conventional weapons against civilian populations in Gaza again and again. There is a flotilla planned for next year. Will you be going? Oh, you know, those international flotillas are so important for drawing attention to what is happening in Gaza and I'm very grateful to have been on one of the flotillas. I have to say it's, it's, it's kind of a, a an expensive endeavor, and so uh, I think maybe I'll save up our money from Voices and get myself over to Afghanistan uh, in a couple of weeks and continue to um, head in that direction for international travel. What's the situation you're being told about Afghanistan at the moment? The peace talks, so-called? Mm, well, they yeah, the Majid Massal reporting for the New York Times says that it's likely that a treaty will be signed between the United States and the Taliban sometime next week. But, of course, um, that has no inclusion whatsoever of the government of Afghanistan, very ready to say that the government of Afghanistan is comprised of warlords as well. How will women and children fare under these uh, various agreements between various warlords. That's a very uncertain reality. I, I know that the young friends that I so admire in Kabul will be in later in September holding a gathering of representatives from every province in Afghanistan to try to see how they can talk amongst one another about creating a lasting and adorable peace. And they believe that that's essentially going to rest on people having livelihoods and uh, being able to restore agricultural infrastructure and develop permaculture, find ways to get clean water to people. So they're very thoughtful and they're very practical and, and so good about sharing what resources they are able to, to kind of accrue. Mine's a big problem. Well, certainly there's uh, the, the unexploded ordnance strewn across Afghanistan that hasn't been cleaned up 
even since the United States dropped so many cluster bombs in uh, 2001, each cluster bomb has 200 smaller bomblets, and, and there are still explosives that are, are very dangerous, ex- explosive remnants of war all across Afghanistan. The United States, when it does leave a base, leaves all kinds of contaminants and weaponry from shooting ranges, and, and so it, it will take a very long time to get all of that cleaned up. And the United States has said that it's earmarked and appropriated money for what they call the largest retrograde mission in United States history to bring down the troops from the top of the surge. But they said that their lower priority, something they might get to years from now, would be to assist with the actual cleanup of the contaminants strewed across the land. I hope you have a good time while you're there. I'm sure that the the boys and girls will be very happy to see you. Oh, well, I'll be thrilled to go. I'll be accompanied by another Voices member, uh, Sarah Ball, a psychiatric nurse, and it's her second trip there. And we, we very much look forward to sitting with the kids at the street kids' school and being with our young friends as they envision a far better future. Thanks, Kathy. Thank you, Jan. And thanks to Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence. And the time is coming up to 5.33. Today we focus again on Australian journalist and publisher Julian Assange, incarcerated in a notorious maximum security prison in London after being found guilty of skipping bail. He now faces extradition to the US because of his publishing exposures at a minimum 175 years in jail and as many people fear the death penalty. Our corporate media is virtually silent on this issue to the disgust of many who helped for his release, giving voice to Australian journalist Peter Grester who reacted to the 11th April arrest and imprisonment of Julian by aligning himself with the US-led prosecutions of the WikiLeaks founder. He has since backtracked on some of those comments in his stand. One of the vocal Australian supporters of Julian is Dr Alison Bronowski, academic, journalist and former diplomat. Alison, I thought a good starting point for this interview about Julian and press freedom would be the conference in Britain last month. The US Foreign Office and the Canadian Ministry for Foreign Affairs hosted a global conference on media freedom. Politicians and opinion shapers from around the world gathered in London to promote a free and independent media and ensure the safety and protection of journalists who were under threat around the world. A conference I would suggest full of hypocrisy, two Russian media outlets excluded, and Julian Assange's plight failed to rate a mention on the conference agenda. Well, in fact, I gather that, although I wasn't there myself, that Julian was mentioned, but only very briefly, by Amal Clooney, the uh, uh, human rights lawyer who's the wife of George Clooney, who has recently been appointed a special representative by the UK government for human rights. And she mentioned a whole lot of countries where human rights of journalists are deficient, including Australia. And she apparently did mention Julian in passing, but the recorded version of what she said that appeared on the internet for that conference mention of 
hers took that reference out. So the record that I've got doesn't show his name at all. And so you can see what that's all about. That's incredible, isn't it? That what I really meant, well, I didn't actually mean that he wasn't mentioned. I mentioned that he wasn't on the agenda for the meeting. Well, not only that, but uh, our foreign minister, uh, Maurice Payne, was in the audience. Now, there are two interesting things about that. One is that Australia, that this conference was sponsored by the governments of the UK and Canada. Now, why in the world didn't Australia co-sponsor that? And if she was there, why didn't she speak? And if she wasn't going to speak from the platform, why didn't she say something about an Australian citizen who fitted exactly the profile of the kind of thing that the conference was talking about? That is, the freedom of journalists to do their work and to publish without government interference. It falls in face of the, the publicity that was given to Peter Grester and the soccer player by the Australian government who pulled out all the stops, so-called, to support them to get them out of jail. That's right. It really is ironic because Peter Grester himself was there, as you know, and the media in Australia have bent over backwards just in recent months to get, well, of course they did when Peter Grester was in Cairo, but more recently, Hakim al-Araibi, who was not even an Australian citizen, arrested in Bangkok, and Alex Sigling, who was detained in Pyongyang. And huge amounts of, of media space was given to that and government efforts to get these two men back to Australia or out of where they were, which is what happened. As far as Julian's concerned, totally different story. Ask yourself why. Well, I'm asking you why. <laughs> well, it's very clear why. Because in 2010, when WikiLeaks published the large the record, at that time, record uh, number of documents given to them by Bradley Manning, now Chelsea Manning. Those documents were severely embarrassing to the US and governments because it revealed what they were doing and saying to each other in secret about a whole lot of different things. It showed them, them up in a public way that governments don't like. So what they always do when that kind of thing happens is turn on the messenger and punish the messenger, which is exactly what happened. Now, it got worse because not only did governments punish uh, WikiLeaks Julian, but the media whom he had trusted with his cache of documents, the mainstream media, New York Times, The Guardian, and uh, the uh, Le Monde, the uh, German paper, couple of others, all of them published, the Guardian got it uh, first, published the password to this cache of documents, which Julian had asked them to keep secret until, well, to keep it secret altogether. The Guardian published it, so while he was still in the process of redacting 10,000 names, they published the stuff. Then they turned on him and blamed him for having revealed all these names. And they also published falsely a lie saying that Julian didn't care who died. In fact, they didn't care who died because they published the stuff themselves. Furthermore, a couple of years later, an American brigadier from the Pentagon st 
stated quite seriously that nobody had lost their lives as a result of the names that were published uh, in these documents. So the whole thing about Julian being some kind of, of, of rogue element who doesn't care about the fate of, of innocent Afghan civilians and so on is absolutely false. Now, the reason they've done that, and they've been doing it ever since 2010, cumulatively, is to build up this house of cards that vilifies everything to do with Japan personally, makes him into a public enemy, number one, and makes people who don't pay much attention hate his guts and feel complete disdain for him, which is exactly what the governments have wanted. Now, slowly, drip by drip, including the false rape case in Sweden, they have been damaging his his character. Whatever, I don't know him personally, but you know, whatever kind of person he is, has absolutely nothing to do with it. Nothing. This is not what counts. But it certainly makes people accept what has happened to him now. That is that he's languishing in a high-security prison in London, and by May next year, he will be extradited to the United States on charges of espionage. And people will accept this. Instead of, instead of rioting in the streets, they will accept this because they've been taught to despise him and to think that he's a wretched man and a crook. We hope that he survives that time in that prison. Indeed. And that's what worries me, and I'm glad you mentioned that, because John Pilger went to see him a couple of days ago and he reported that, uh, as we've heard before from Nils Meltzer, the, the UN uh, rapporteur on torture, that Julian is not in a good way. Now, Nils mentioned his mental state as has resulted from long period of incarceration and serious anxiety. His mental health is not good, uh, which by which I mean he probably means that he's profoundly depressed. I wouldn't be in the least surprised. And John Pilger seems to confirm this, and I'm, I'm glad that Pilger went to see him because when Maurice Payne was in town, in London, for the conference that you mentioned, as far as we can make out, she didn't go to see him, and she didn't even raise uh, his condition with the, her colleague, the uh, British Foreign Minister, which I would have thought was total negligence of her responsibility as to do that. Here's the thing. If Julian is in the Belmarsh Prison Hospital, as we understand he is, and if he is being treated for, let's say, depression, what really worries me more is that he may come out of that process a vegetable. Now, look at the record. Where is Sergei Skripal? We don't know. The last we heard, Sergei Skripal had suddenly collapsed due to being attacked with Novichok. That the story doesn't stand up. It, it is a pack of lies, government lies. People who are watching this closely can't credit almost any detail of it, but he's disappeared. We don't know if he's alive or dead. We are led to believe that his daughter is alive, but if they were both poisoned by the same thing and it was totally deadly, they should both be dead. However, Skripal and his daughter have both disappeared. Whether he is a vegetable, we don't know. It would certainly be possible that, or certainly be convenient, 
for the UK government for him to be a vegetable because he will not then be able to tell what it is that he knows that they will find embarrassing. Now, Julian is in exactly the same position. His evidence will embarrass the UK government and the US government again when he gives it. And they may feel that it would be better for him to be either vegetative or dead before that happens. Look at what has happened to Mr. Jeffrey Epstein. All of a sudden, this very embarrassing man is dead. Look what happened to Seth Rich, who is said to have delivered the Democratic National Party emails to WikiLeaks. He's dead. It figures that more than Julian's mental health is what worries me. And very few people are allowed to see him. He's virtually in solitary confinement, isn't he? So I understand, and I believe that he has, he's locked up for 20 hours a day solitary, and the other four, which may be in the middle of the night for all I know, is when he gets out of that. Now, whether that means he goes to have a meal with other people, whether that means he gets outside in what passes for the British sun, oh, sorry, it is summertime, I agree, but whether he manages to get out in the fresh air, whether he manages to have any exercise, four hours a day isn't much. We know that Julian has seen him. I assume that his lawyers uh, have seen him because that is his basic human right. Jennifer Robinson was here at the end of the month and I understand that she saw several ministers in the Australian government but straight after her visit the Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that he would not be raising the matter of Julian with Mike Pompeo who was visiting at the same time. Did he give a reason why? No, he just said he wasn't going to raise that, he would not raise that matter. I must say, when, you know, your question, the Australian media have been so incurious about this whole thing. The only reports that we've been getting have been from the ABC's London correspondent, and even that has been very limited. He's just reported on Neil Smeltzer. He hasn't been to the prison as far as we can make out. He hasn't talked with Julian Assange. Whether he sought to or not, I don't know. That report by... Niels, was very damning, wasn't it? Yes, it was. That was in May, in which he accused the four governments of the US, the UK, Ecuador and Sweden of willfully torturing Julian. He's a serious lawyer um, and international civil servant, Niels Meltzer, and he wouldn't make that kind of allegation lightly. He sent his evidence by letter to each of those governments. He has had replies now last month from the US and Sweden, both of them quite rudely denying what he said. As far as I know, he's had no response from either Britain or Ecuador at all. And this fabrication to say that he's, he's not really a journalist, he's just a publisher. One of the 27 slurs, isn't it? There's a, there's a great journalist, a blogger in Melbourne 
called Caitlin Johnson, who has written a list of 27 slurs against Julian with an argument dismissing every single one. And that one, about him not being really a journalist, is the one that is... I think she almost leads with that because it's so easy to knock it over. Not only has he been given Walkley Awards for his outstanding journalism and so on, but he is clearly in the modern world doing what journalists do. They get leaks and secrets from whistleblowers and governments every day. That's their, that's their stock in trade. They do that. They then publish them. If they publish them online, like in an outfit like WikiLeaks, or if they publish them in a hard print black and white bit paper, doesn't make them any less a journalist or a publisher. It's an absolute um, cop-out, that one. And for Peter Grester, who runs a, a centre for media freedom in the University of Queensland, to adopt this line after what happened to him strikes me as the maximum in hypocrisy. I believe that he has retracted some of that statement he made about Julian. Oh, glad to hear it. If, if, can you quote that to me? I haven't seen it. No, I can't at the moment, but I dare say that you could find it somewhere that he... I, I don't know how long after it was, but he did retract what he said. Yeah. Well, a bit late. Yes, very late. What's to be done, Alison? All of us have to keep putting out stuff just as you are. All we've got is our putative freedom of expression. All we've got is our capacity to further embarrass governments. Remember when David Hicks was in Guantanamo Bay and the Canadians had got their man out? The Brits had refused to have their people uh, subjected to American military courts and they got them out. Australia did nothing. We sat on our hands until public pressure to get David Hicks out made John Howard talk to the United States and they did this plea bargain so that in exchange for him saying he was guilty, he got seven months in jail in Australia, then was freed, published his book, wasn't allowed to get any money from publishing it and has since lived a pretty miserable life, but at least he got out. John Howard did that because of public pressure and also because uh, David Hicks had a very smart American lawyer called Michael Morey who just battered away on this thing. And I think having an American lawyer in that particular circumstance was helpful because the Americans had to pay attention to him and so did John Howard. Julian's lawyers are terrific, but they're Australians. There's Jeffrey Robertson and Jennifer Robinson in London, both of them extremely good lawyers and extremely articulate, and they make their point again and again, and it go, rolls off the backs of Australian politicians on both sides of, of politics like off a duck's back. They don't care. And so the only way we can make them care is to go on doing what you're doing and what I'm doing. I'm just running a story on this today with, well, I've done one with Penn, which is up on their website now, and uh, a different version of that same story will be on Pearls and Irritations this week. What is Penn doing about this? Well, Penn is run by a story, which is nice. They actually uh, will 
they'll do an, it's on their website now, but they'll do an update of it if anything happens between now and November. I, I must say I had to plead with them, uh, persuade them, which they readily agreed to, to put the story up now, not to wait, because I, I am seriously worried about what may happen between now and November. I really am. And I think that the pressure, the public pressure that I'm talking about, needs to be applied by as many people as possible. Just uh, last weekend, when I was unfortunately in Darwin and, and, and couldn't um, go to it, there was a public meeting in a, there was a meeting in a pub in Sydney where Mike da Mark Davis, who uh, is a former SBS and ABC journalist, and who was working at one time at The Guardian in London at the time in 2010 when uh, uh, WikiLeaks published its stuff, he uh, spoke at the weekend very movingly about what went on in The Guardian and how they set Julian up to take the blame while they published the stuff and got the credit. And his story on that is, is just breathtaking. Now, Mark Davis is an ally in this cause, and I hope we can get more from him uh, out in the mainstream media because the kind of thing I'm talking about, the mainstream media won't touch it in Australia. The other person who spoke was Dr. Lisa Johnston, who's a clinical psychologist. Uh, I mean, she's talking about the injustice to Julian, but she's talking more about uh, why it is and how it is that somebody's character can be so produced and blind and a an ordinary citizen can be set up as a, as a scapegoat for government guilt in the way that has happened to Julian. And she's very concerned about the effects on his health as well, of course. Must be terribly hard for his father and his mother. John Shipton is a sweet man, tried very hard to get people to take account of this. His mother as well. Is, is running a constant social media campaign. They know what drives Julian, and they respect it and understand it. It's hard, though, because, you know, it's like, this is an inappropriate comparison, but they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, they're his parents. <laughs> and, and that doesn't mean that what they say is not credible. But when I said an inappropriate comparison, it's like when they interview the families of convicted terrorists who say, oh, we're amazed. We thought just thought he was an ordinary chap, just, you know, butter wouldn't melt in his mouth. We all loved and trusted him. Well, of course they did. He's their son. It's the public behind Julian's parents that are important. I mean, they can inspire people and to some extent lead them, but it's got to be the, the independent, opinion of the public that's going to change things. But does the mainstream media allow his parents to be on their programs so that they can talk about the situation? I haven't seen like his mother or father on television or, or seen any transcript of an interview with them. No, I haven't either. The only stuff I see is online. And in fact, you know, where I where I look for truth is online these days. What you read in the newspapers, in, in newspapers is, and, and see on much of our television is so false. 
I can hardly bear to look at it. I mean, what we are being told about the situation in the Persian Gulf is complete rubbish. And we're, we're being made to believe that the Iranians started this situation, whereas last year it was Trump who walked away from that treaty. And everything since then has followed because they want a war. And that's what they're drumming up. And, and they are using, I mean, Trump talks about fake news. He's an expert in it. They are using the media to create their own reality. People who are too dumb to watch what's really going on believe it, as they do believing that Julian is some kind of cat maltreating hobo. You know, I, I, as I said, I have no interest in Julian as a, as a private person. It's Julian's public position and what governments may do to him that worries me. Okay, Alison, if that's all you have, we'll leave it there. I think that's probably enough for now, don't you? Okay, thank you so much. My pleasure. And that was Dr. Alison Bronowski, journalist, author, academic, former Australian diplomat, speaking about the treatment of Australian journalist Julian Assange. That's all for me for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Done by Law. Bye for now.